there are some preachers that get up and they'll start with a joke, I guess, to warm up the crowd or whatever. I have a problem with that. Um, the problem is, I'm not funny. So if it's okay with you, we'll just sort of jump right into it. There we go. Will you pray with me? Father, we dedicate this time to you. We have gathered together. You have called us together to worship you. To worship you with our singing. We're getting to worship you by opening up the word. We will worship you on our way out as we drop our tithes and our offerings in the offering plate. And we will worship you in our communities where we live. Bless this time, I pray. May the words of my mouth be your words. I've studied, I've prepared, but it is your So, several weeks ago, I felt impressed to speak on the book of Ruth. I'm not sure why. Uh, because after barely getting into it, I realized I was in deep trouble. Many of you ladies in this room have probably been in Bible studies where you studied the book of Ruth, and you studied it over weeks, um, exploring all the nuances, all of the intricacies of the text. This is a story about women. It is a story told from the perspective of women. As one commentator put it, this is a beguilingly complex As a man, I can tell you I've been involved in many Bible studies over the decades. I can never once remember a time when a man said, Hey, let's study Ruth. It, you know, it's not our book for some reason. And yet, there are some nuggets in here we need to pay attention The story begins with these words. In the days when judges ruled. It, it's almost like once upon a time. Well, in the days when judges ruled, kind of sets up the story. We're not going to take a lot of time, but those few little words tell us an awful lot about the setting of this book. In the time of judges, if you want to get a sense of what Israel was like in the time of judges, go back one book before Ruth to the book of Judges and read the last five chapters, 17 through 21. It tells a story of how the 11 tribes, you know, there are 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them kind of settled in the northern part of the country, two of them settled in the south, uh, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, Judah was sort of headquartered in Jerusalem, Benjamin, Bethlehem was associated with the tribe of Benjamin. Well, the 10 tribes in the north got angry. Benjamin. Actually, 11 tribes got angry at something that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin did. And so they went to war with them and just about wiped them out. They, let, they killed all the women and children. They left 600 men alive. And, and then they realized, oh, in addition to that, we also made a vow we would never give any of our women to them as wives. We've condemned them to annihilation, to extinction. Well, how are we going to solve this problem? Well, <clears throat> they solved it by looking around to see if there was anyone among the 11 tribes that actually didn't join into the warfare 
against Benjamin. He found a group of, of Israelites from Jabesh Gilead who had not participated. So they put together a raiding party and they kidnapped 400 women and brought them to the men of Benjamin. Well, that still left 200 guys without a wife. So they put together another raiding party a little later in the year during a festival at Shiloh, and they kidnapped another 200 women. That way, the tribe of Benjamin. So in this rather barbaric way, the tribe of Benjamin was saved from extinction. Well, it's into this kind of a climate that we see the book of Ruth. In the days when judges ruled. But it gets worse. There was famine in the land. So the writer is telling us right at the beginning that we have a food shortage in the midst of social unrest. This is a difficult time. Well, the story doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but there is a man from the tribe of Benjamin called Elimelech. He's got a wife, Naomi, he's got two sons. They're having trouble finding enough to eat, so they decide that they will move to the east, across the water, across the Dead Sea, to the land of Moab, a foreign country. And there they live for, uh, I don't know exactly how long, but the, the scripture says ten years, but it's not clear whether they lived there ten years, or whether the boys grew up and married Moabite women, and they were married for ten years. In any case, very quickly into the story, Lemelech dies, and the boy's two wives, who are Moabite women, foreign women, two boys die. Now we're left with three widows in a foreign land to Naomi, without protection, without jobs, without land, trying to figure out how to stay, stay alive. Well, word gets back to Naomi that the famine around the area of Bethlehem has, has eased. There's food in the land. So she decides to go back, and her two daughters decide they'll go back with her. Orpah and Ruth are names. And uh, you get not too far into the journey, and Naomi says, you know, this is nuts. You, you guys should stay here. This is your country. These are your people. This is, you know the customers, you've got family here, your chances of finding a husband and protection and all of the things that are needed at that time are here for you in Moab. Orpah sees the wisdom of this and turns back, goes back to her family. Ruth, on the other hand, is having none of it. Uh, in fact, it's here where we get these well-known lines, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This was a woman who knew what she wanted, and she was not going to abandon her mother-in-law, Naomi. Well, they make it back to Bethlehem just as the barley harvest starts, and Ruth tells Naomi she's going to go glean in the field. Now, gleaning is one of those economic laws that Israel had, where if you owned a field and you had a crop, you were not permitted to harvest all the way up to the edge of the field. You had to leave a swath at some distance 
for the poor to come through and harvest. The foreigner, the immigrant, the sojourner, the traveler. Another part of that gleaning law said that when you, when you went through and harvested these fields, you weren't going to be real particular about picking up every single little piece of stock that you harvested. Some was left behind. Again, for the poor, the foreigner, the immigrant, the sojourner, the traveler. Well, Ruth tells Naomi, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to, whoever will let me glean in their field, uh, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to glean in, in whatever I can find. So she, and she is described as that foreign woman, that Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi. Of course, by this time, Ruth's dedication to the care of Naomi has reached everyone in that little farming community. They all know. And Boaz approaches Ruth and says, Listen, I don't want you to glean in any other field. You stay right here. Get together all you want. He even gave her some special privileges to gather among the sheaves that had already been bound up and, and typically was off limits to humans, but he gave her permission to do that. And most importantly, he told the men who were working the harvest, don't touch her. Don't lay a hand on her. Leave her alone. Remember, this is a dangerous time. Ruth has no standing in the Israelite community. She's a foreigner. She's unmarried. He has no protection. He's out there alone. He is vulnerable. You leave her alone. Well, she returns home at the end of the day with a significant amount of barley. And after a conversation with Naomi, realizes that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's former husband, Elimelech. He's a family member. Under Israelite law, if a man dies without heirs, there is a, a provision in the law where a family member has an obligation to buy the field, redeem the field, if you will, and to provide protection for the remaining survivors of that family, and to continue having children so that the line would not die out. Well, Naomi's too old to have children, so she's in a kind of a tough spot. But she does say to Ruth, Boaz is a family member. He has an obligation to be a guardian redeemer. People go there as Gael, G-A-E-L. He is our Gael, our guardian redeemer. Well, the harvest continues. In fact, it goes past the barley harvest into the wheat harvest. And Ruth continues to glean until they have enough food to make it through to the next harvest. Naomi says to Ruth, listen, I need to find some protection for you. I need to find a husband for you. Which is a kind of a problem because Naomi's got nothing to offer in the way of dowry. Ruth is a foreign woman. But she says, listen, Boaz is going to be on the threshing floor. The threshing floor would be a place where the harvest was brought in, and they would separate out the inedible parts of the harvest from the grain itself, which could be processed and used for bread. But he's going to be there on the threshing room floor. You, uh, you go after nightfall, wait until after he's had plenty to eat and drink, and then lay down at his feet. Well, she does that, 
and in the middle of the night, something startles Boaz. So she does that, and then in the middle of the night, something startles him. He says, who are you? Because remember, it's dark, you can't see. And she identifies herself. She says, I am your servant, Ruth. Um, and then she asks something very odd. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. The Hebrew word here is kenek, K-A-N-A-P. And it has to do sometimes with extremities, like covered with wings, covered with roots, offer some protection. But the word is most often used when there is marriage somewhere in the proposition. In a very subtle way, Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. Well, Boaz recognizes he's in line to be the redeemer, guardian redeemer of, of Naomi. But because of Ruth's very close relationship with Naomi, he knows that if he redeems Elimelech's property and saves Naomi, that Ruth is part of this package of meals. He also knows that there's someone else in the village that is more closely related to Naomi than he is, and he basically has right of first refusal. But Boaz accepts the responsibility to sort the matter out. Before light, Ruth slips back home to Naomi, tells her what happened, and Naomi says, this is good, you just wait. I promise you, he's going to sort this out today. Well, that morning, Boaz goes to the town gate, and uh, this other uh, relative shows up. Elimelech gathers the town elders together, I'm sorry, Boaz gathers the town elders together and suggests to this other man that he, uh, that he, by the field, that he redeemed, that he fulfilled his obligation as the guardian redeemer. And the other man says, that's a good idea, I'll do it. And then Boaz very craftily says, oh, by the way, Ruth is part of the deal. You get her too. Well, at this, the man says, I, you know, I don't think I can do that. Part of the obligation to, when he brings Ruth on, is to produce more descendants produce more sons, keep the family line going. He says, I, if I do that, it will dilute the inheritance from my other family members. I, I don't think I can do that. And uh, Boaz says, okay, well, then I will. And it's witnessed by all the town elders, and they all agree that this is a good idea. So Boaz buys the field. The elders of the town witness the transaction. And he provides all the safety and security that Naomi needs. He marries Ruth. They have a son. And they all live happily ever after. That's kind of the story. It started out with once upon a time and ends up with and they live happily ever after. The men in the room are going, ah, that's kind of the way I remember the whole thing. And the women are sitting there thinking, Oh, you took an incredibly complex beautiful story. You stripped it from all the heart and soul. You just gave us the skeleton. I did. I, 
I can't cram five weeks of study into a 30-minute Sorry. We've got to draw the line somewhere. But what can we get from this story? Well, I would suggest that there are two themes and a result that come out of this. The first theme is embodied in the Hebrew word chesed. And you have to say that kind of hard H. Chesed. I almost spit on the first row of I'll spare you, we'll just say H-E-S-E-D. The NIV translation translates that as kindness. And certainly it does mean that, but that, that the word kindness doesn't really get at the meaning of hesed. Um, hesed implies an extravagant faithfulness. It is a loyalty inspired by relationship. Remember a few weeks ago when Josh brought us the message on uh, love is a verb? Love is something that you, it's not a feeling, it is something you do for the benefit of someone else. Chesed is much the same way. In Hebrew, one does chesed. It is love performed. I want us to look at all of the places in Ruth where this word chesed is used. First of all, we see in chapter 1, verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you the kindness, the blessing, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. It is Ruth and Orpah's fierce loyalty to Naomi that even before and after the men had died, they had shown extreme blessing. Chapter 2, verse 20. This is after Ruth comes back and tells Naomi that she has been gleaning in Boaz's field that first day. And Naomi says, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness, his message, to the living and the dead, referring to her husband and the two boys. Chapter 3, verse 10. Let's read it. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz said. This is after he discovers her on the threshing room floor, and he discovers who she is. Lord bless you, my daughter, and your wife. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. What was it she showed earlier? Well, it was demonstrated when Ruth came to Bethlehem with Naomi working the fields for her, through two harvests. Uh, and finally, when she visited Boaz on the threshing room floor, this is all done for the benefit of Naomi. She's trying to get Elimelech to redeem the property for Naomi's sake. In the same verse, we see it acknowledged by Boaz when he comes up it's not so subtle to get married. Again, why is this important? Ruth has no standing. She's not one of us. She's one of them. She's from a foreign country. She has no standing. All through this book, we see Hesed demonstrated. The second theme I want to draw your attention to is God's providential provision. We only see God acting overtly one time in the book of Ruth. That's in chapter 4, after Ruth and Boaz are married. And the, the text tells us that God 
allowed Ruth to conceive. There is some speculation among scholars that the ten years that they were in Moab with no children, that that was probably, or very likely, the amount of times that the women had been married to those two boys, and after ten years had not produced any offspring. Later in Israelite law, that would become grounds for divorce. Lack of the ability to produce a son or produce any heirs would be grounds for divorce. So here we see God allowing Ruth to conceive. It's the only time God is mentioned showing activity. The rest of the time, it's very subtle. Uh, let's take a look at it. Chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. They just happened to show up at the beginning of the harvest. Chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. She would have gone to any field. She wasn't particular. She didn't know the layout of the land. She didn't know who was who. She just knew she had to get some grain. Chapter 2, verse 3. The next verse. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvest bush. As it turned out, or coincidentally, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the, the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's former husband. He just happened to show up in Boaz's field. Verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He just happened to show up the day she was out there leaning in the feet. And Ruth doesn't discover the significance of that until she gets home that night and talks to Naomi. In chapter 4, we see that Boaz is going to settle the legal arrangements proposed by Ruth. Um, and so, chapter 4, verse 1, we see, Meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate and sat down there, just as the other guardian redeemer he had mentioned, came along. Just coincidentally. All through this book, we see the providential provision of God, setting up circumstances, working his way through the story for Naomi and Ruth's redemption. It filled their emptiness. It renewed their lives. All of the provision, combined with Ruth and Boaz's chesed, were skillfully crafted by the author to demonstrate how God's provision redeems when willing human partners are at hand. God's provision redeems when willing human partners are at hand. It took the willingness of Ruth and Boaz, leaning into the providential opportunities provided by God, to effect redemption for that community. In my own life, I can relate the story about this. That relates. I I met Jessica in all a few years ago when I was part of a group of adults that would go in on two Thursday nights a month 
first and third Thursdays. We would hang out with the kids in the evening, sing songs, play games, do crafts. We had Halloween parties, Christmas parties. I remember one year we decided we were going to give up our own Christmas morning with our families to have Christmas morning with the kids. We really entered into their lives. But Jessica was a young girl from Tahoe who came from a very difficult family, always in trouble at school, always getting into fights, struggled with substance abuse, and was arrested and placed in the Tahoe facility where she continued her bad behavioral problems. The staff at Tahoe very quickly came to dislike Jessica. They, um, they looked for opportunities to punish her. Any infraction that maybe somebody else might get away with, not Jessica. They were going to keep her in line, keep their thumbs on her. She could see that her behaviors weren't getting her anywhere, and she made some valiant attempts to change. But the die was cast. There wasn't going to be any redemption for her in Tahoe. So, as it happened, she was transferred to the where she could get a fresh start with the staff. Through very conscientious efforts on her part, her behavior did improve. She got better. In fact, there are levels of responsibility given to the kids in the hall based upon behavior. The highest level is honor. Honor behavior, H-O-N-O-R. And you can always tell a kid who is was on honor status because they wear a dark green sweatshirt or a dark green t-shirt, dark green sweatpants. It's a symbol of status and honor. In addition to that, she gets privileges that some of the other kids don't, didn't get. You got a CD player in her room, a book. She was able to have a pencil and paper. Um, only honor students, honor kids, were able to do that. She met Pat. Pat was the, the chaplain at the hall. Pat would come in on every Friday night. In addition to the Thursday night games and fun that we had, I personally had the privilege of bringing meals in at once a month at lunchtime for those students who had done well in school, run a school inside the hall four months out of the week. And so students that had reached a certain level of academic achievement, which really was basically turning in your homework every day, and it was pretty basic stuff. Studying, getting good grades. Uh, students that had reached that level and maintained that level for 30 consecutive days were eligible for a lunch that I would bring in from in and out. They'd put their orders in and we'd provide them a lunch. There was usually three or four kids I sat with at a table during lunchtime. All the other kids had food from the hall and watched as we ate from in and out. It was during one of those visits that I noticed Jessica. She was hunched over her food. She was crying. What caught my eye was the fact that she was wearing a standard issue gray t-shirt. She had broken some rule in the hall, and her honor status had been removed. Now, you don't drop back a level when you lose honor status. You drop all the way to the bottom. 
you have to work your way back up again. When my lunch with the students was over, I went up behind Jessica, put my hands on her shoulder. I leaned down and whispered in her ear. I said, Jessie, this, this is a bump in the road. Don't worry about it. I know you. And I expect within a month, maybe six weeks, you're going to come back in here. And you're going to be wearing that green sweatshirt again. And sure enough, a month later, she was wearing that green sweatshirt. When she turned 18, uh, they can't keep the kids. Once they hit the 18th birthday, they're out. Out on the street, or their crimes are serious enough to, to go to jail. She was released. By this time, she had made a decision. She was not going to go back to Tahoe. She was not going to go back to her friends. She was not going to go back to that old way of life, the old habits. But the question was, where would she go? She was in an unfamiliar town, no job, no place to live. The only thing that she owned were the clothes she was wearing when she walked out the door. Well, there's there's a ministry in town that helps men and women who are getting out of juvenile hall, jail, and prison. We have been here new beginnings. And they help with that transition. Randy, the guy that runs that ministry, offered Jessica a, a place to stay. He owns a he runs a couple of houses, one for men, one for women. Jessica stayed in the house. He gave her a job at New Beginnings. He met a young man. He met a young man who had been released from prison. And they started seeing more and more of each other, and they got married. I went to their wedding. They both continued to work in the ministry and help other people who were transitioning to civilian life. Today, I can tell you, Jessica runs a successful business on Main Street here in Washington. She does all the merchandising, all the hiring. People she hires are people from the ministry. We're trying to get back. Not long ago, I was talking to Jessica. How are you doing? How's things going? He said, things are great. God has been so good to us. Well, I'm glad things worked out for you. Then she said, Steve, you will never know. You will never know what you and those other adults that came in on Thursday nights at the home. You will never know what that meant to us. Kindnesses that you and the others showed to us when we felt alone and abandoned and forgotten by the rest of the world had an enormous impact on our lives. Folks, we don't know the effect that our kindnesses will have on another person. We don't know how many lives are going to be touched by Jessica, or by her son. Those chapters have not yet been written. It's interesting, at the end of the book of Ruth, there's a little genealogy in there. Ruth and Boaz gave birth to a son, 
Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of a little boy that killed a giant and grew up to be king, David. You follow the genealogy all down the line as shown in the books of Matthew and Luke in the Gospels. We see that that line finally ends up with the birth of a little boy in Bethlehem who grew up to have a huge ministry and whose life death and resurrection changed the world. And it started in a barley field in a little town, in a little field outside the town of Bethlehem when passing kindness was displayed. God's provision redeemed and human partners are here. Father, we, we have no idea the impact our lives will have on the people around us. But you are working in your world. In your world. You are setting up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for us to step in and just show the kindness, the essence that you gave to us and to reflect that back into our world. As we leave this place today, I pray that we will see those opportunities. They're not coincidences. They are providentially placed in our hands for the benefit of your creation. 